We're reading this morning from John 20, 11 through 18, and Matthew 28, 16 to 17. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Praise be to God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. As we gather on the Resurrection Sunday, Friday night still lingers. The disappointment, to say the least. Jesus is there suffering, dying on the cross, looks up to heaven and says, to die." There's three definitions and uses of that word. It is paid for. The battle is over, victory is secured, and you are set free. The debt has been paid, victory is secure, and you're free. As he cries to Telestai and then says, Into your hands I commit my spirit, he breathes his last breath. The earth trembles in a huge earthquake as the rocks shake. And the, in the temple there's a, there's a veil that tears from top to bottom that separates the Holy of Holies. The sky grows dark and the disciples who believed risked everything left their family, their business to follow Jesus, are now terrified and crushed and disappointed and disillusioned. I thought this was it. I thought this was the ruler. I thought this was the king. What? How is he dead? Fast forward through Saturday where they're contemplating, weeping, praying, waiting, wondering, role-playing. Hey, didn't, didn't Jesus do something cool for Lazarus? Where he ra- I wonder if he could do something for himself. I wonder. And then... The, the women go to the tomb, and they, there's Mary at the tomb weeping, and he hears, woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them, well, they've taken away my Lord. Where do I need to go? What do I need to do? i got to go get him. Where, where is he? If you tell me where he is, I'll go get him. Having said this, she turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but in the retelling, John's like, she doesn't see Jesus. She sees him, but doesn't see him. She thinks he's the gardener, and then Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then who are you seeking? And she tells him, oh man, I'm looking for Jesus' body. Where is it? I'm going to go get it. I'm going to bring it here. And, and then Jesus says, Mary, in verse 16, 
in a way that only Jesus would have talked to the woman he cast demons out of. And then all of a sudden she sees Jesus and sees him for who he is and realizes in my doubts, my assumptions, my disillusionment, it's all been washed away and you are Jesus. So she embraces him, wraps her arms around him. Don't cling to me, he says. I have not ascended yet to the Father. We got work to do. We got disciples to remind of my promise. We got people to tell. I got to appear to a bunch of people. We got stuff to do. I got to ascend in like a short amount of time. We, Mary, you know, we got stuff to do. And she's like, oh, that's right. Okay. Like, go, tell, go tell the disciples. We got, we got people to talk to. We got to process this. And he says, I'm ascending to my father, to your father, to my God, your God. And Mary Magdalene then goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. They celebrated the resurrection, kind of, sort of. Not like we do today as we fully embrace and rally and cry and praise. Death's sting has been forever removed and he's alive. And now we have the evidence that's endless, pointing to God's promises, pointing to his presence that will never leave us, reminding us, as Paul said, that nothing in all creation, nor height, nor depth, nor in the spiritual realm, will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because he rose from the grave. Scripture records nine post-resurrection appearances before he ascends. And then there's a handful of other appearances after he ascends, where he comes to Saul on the road to Emmaus. The disciples were taken to a mountaintop before he ascends, and he gives this amazing assignment, the Great Commission, Go into the whole world and tell everybody to obey all that I've commanded you to do and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And they're like, yeah, okay, cool. That's what we're supposed to do. You're always going to be with us. And we forget, as we hear those words, we forget that like them, we also hear that and get excited. And it says in Matthew 28, this is our emotional state, or our mind kind of wanders here sometimes. The 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Many of you probably are here, you're like, yeah, we're focusing on Jesus, the same resurrection story, I can't wait to hear it. And some of you, if not maybe more than some, have some doubts. You're in good company. The disciples were with him for three years, and yet they doubted. The title of the message is Believing Through Your Doubt. How do you believe through your doubts? Let's pray. God, we pray for your spirit to open our eyes, to make sense in our minds, and to, to calm our be busy and, and weary hearts, Lord, as we look upon you again and, and hopes to learn to gaze upon you, that our, our faith would gaze never to be distracted or, or doubting, but always be building our, our belief, even through our doubts, as they come. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever found yourself full of faith? You just get so excited about who God is and what he's done, but then doubts kind of start creeping in. And well, what if, and the what ifs arise? Man, there's been times where I've been so close to God and I just know his presence and I've been good full of faith, and suddenly, whether it's a crisis that happened, or in my life, a crisis that happened, and going back to that eve, or that 
problem that, that, that occurred and going, man, how, I know God's on the throne. I believe that, but I don't feel that because why would this catastrophe happen? And you start to doubt the purpose. You doubt his plan. You're not sure, maybe. You're in church and everyone's worshiping and the band's going great. And you're like, wow, this worship experience is awesome. It's like the first Easter, all these women up here leading. You know, that's, all the guys are, I don't know, probably sleeping in. Like, sweet, got the women band. That's awesome. We'll come later to the tomb. Check it out. And, uh, and you're looking around. Everyone's worshiping. This is awesome. But I'm just not feeling it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just starting to doubt. Is God even close? Can, I, can he be close? I hear about God answering prayers, which is wonderful. I've done the prayer thing. I've talked to God. Maybe I'm doing it wrong because he's not answering my prayers. What's, what's the deal? And you start to doubt. Does God even answer prayer anymore? Bad things happen. It's fine when they happen to bad people, but why do they happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And doubts start to arise. Nothing seems to ever work out. When you start to doubt, it can be a scary feeling, especially when you come to Jesus and you believe in Him and you have this new life and all of a sudden these doubts and questions arise. And, well, maybe you're worrying and you're like, am I the only one? Because everyone else seems to have their life figured out and no one's talking about doubts. And maybe if I'm the only one, then maybe I shouldn't ask these questions. You feel a little bit of guilt. Maybe you feel ashamed having doubt. And people often leave the church. They go, well, I, I didn't really fit. I couldn't really just ignore the doubts and the questions, and I couldn't ask them, and so I just left. They don't feel safe asking the question. So first off, we have to ask, why do we doubt? Generally, doing a little poll, we figured out. Feedback came in. They said, yeah, questions with no answers. First one, we doubt because we have questions with no answers. So the answers aren't what we want, right, in our postmodern society. Well, I don't, I don't like that answer, so I'm not going to believe in that, God. I'm not going to believe in the Bible. All right, we'll take for a minute and realize that our moment in history, if history is able to secure our political or social ideology, history shows that our great-grandkids will laugh at our view of <laughs> that we think is how the world should view life. So questions with no answer. Instead of coming and, and going, okay, I, I can't disprove the resurrection, but I don't like some of the answers God gives. Or maybe it's a hurt you can't forgive. Maybe another believer who's supposed to love and forgive has hurt you and there's no forgiveness. Probably the worst of all is the fear of un the unknown. Maybe we can all be, if, if we're honest, that's certainly one that eventually I get to. It might take me a little longer than others, but yeah, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or Certainly, I don't know what's going to happen next year with the housing market or stock market, so that could cause some fear. And some Christians have no grace. It's like a stick that doesn't bend. It only breaks where you have to agree that this is our view of, of life and reality, and if you agree to this, then you're good. If not, then, well, you're, you're out of the club. We need to look to Jesus, and as Christians, we need to be like Jesus and be harder on ourselves than we are on others. Maybe you look around and kids are growing up and in church, as a kid, you'd see people's lives contradict the Bible. And it's like, well, that guy claims to be a believer, but he's certainly not living like Jesus. And doubts arise. How, does that, how do you make sense of that? Maybe a Christian hurts you, and there's no forgiveness. And there's that hurt, and doubts come. Well, can anyone really love like Jesus and forgive like him? You're following these spiritual leaders, especially as of late, where it seems like every hour, another prominent figure in the Christian community decides that they've been living in sin and, and sin will always find you out and they fall. 
how can we not have any doubts? When bad things happen, it just breaks, right? And doubts come in and it goes, okay, well, what am I, what am I doing? Is this even real? Did God really save me and change me? Is he doing that with them? Your doubts can be used to either grow your belief in God or remove your belief in God and put it somewhere else. So to understand this situation with our doubts, it's really unbelief and doubts are misplaced faith. Where we place our faith not in the living God, but in dying men. Disciples don't have all the right answers. Christians and disciples, we don't have all the right answers, but we ask all of our questions to God. We bring our questions to God. Just like the disciples, when they had questions, they'd bring it to Jesus. Hey, explain this. Hey, I'm kind of stumped on this. Help me understand what, what it is. And so the church should be, must be the safest place to ask the hard questions, to deal with our doubts. The second difference we need to understand is the difference between faith and belief. While they are synonyms, they are distinct. So faith is God's gift it's amazing. God gives you faith. And he gives us different measures of faith. So faith, by definition, in the dictionary, is the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And Hebrews adds to that and clarifies it in Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So that's faith. On the other hand, the synonym belief isn't the same. The definition is firm. Belief is firm belief in the reliability, truth, or ability of someone or something. So it's the firm belief, and that you can rely on that, ability of someone or something. So similar, but distinct in the sense that faith, active, can be put this way. Faith is a constant gaze, not a single glance upon the saving God. So faith is a constant gaze where your eyes are fixed on Jesus and your mind is being changed to think like Jesus. Your heart desires the things Jesus desires and your hands end up doing the things that Jesus would do. And it's that faith, that gift that God gives us to focus and fix our eyes and gaze upon the saving God that will grow our belief. And it's that process. The concept of faith is fixing our eyes on God as we'll grow our understanding of his nature. His promises will be set above our preferences. And then we'll be able to stand firm. And our doubts may come, but we'll be able to remain with our eyes gazing on God. So why does this matter? Well, the interesting thing is the first in Scripture to believe Jesus was the Son of God, it was not the disciples. It was actually demons. When you read the gospel accounts, it's the demons who are crying out. And, and James accounts this and he says, look, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In James 2.19, which tells us that the demons believed Jesus was the Son of God, but they did not have faith. They didn't acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. They can't. There's no Savior for demons and angels. So it's possible to have perfectly good, right theology, have right beliefs, have a perfect religion, and yet no faith. So for it's by grace, Paul says in Ephesians, he writes to this church in Ephesus to help them because like us, we love religion. We love rules and lists and here's what you should do and shouldn't do and here's how to be a part of the club. And, and Paul's saying, no, it's already been paid for. It's grace. It's God's gift for you. 
It's an undeserved gift. It's grace. It's His grace. You've been saved through faith. Through gazing unto the God who saves. Not just a glance, but a gaze. And this is not from yourself. You can't stir up this desire to look at the saving God on your own. It's a gift of God. So faith is a gift. We're saved not by grace through right beliefs. We're saved by grace through faith. And that is so important because if we try to take what Jesus did on the cross, if we try and take what he accomplished and, 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 and work for it, there's no way. We, we start stripping and attacking God, Jesus. So we see that to build our beliefs about God over time, when we believe in him, like some of you maybe will today for the first time, you're not going to have a perfect view. It's not right right away. Your faith is a continual gaze, not a one-time glance. And that faith will, will take detours and some distractions. And so your belief that's built and corrected and instructed through God's Word and the Holy Spirit, sometimes there's doubts that come in, in the process. So we see the third thing is that the strongest faith is not a faith that never doubts. Jesus explains this in a parable saying, look, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, a tiny little seed, you can move mountains. Because the strongest faith is not one that doubts. The strongest faith is a faith placed in the strongest object. So placing our faith in God versus men, because if, we, if your faith is in you, it's going to be weak, confused, doubting, fearful of the unknown, but if your faith is in Jesus, it's going to be strong, secure. You're going to have the love and the peace and the comfort and the promise that only Jesus brings. So we can believe through our doubts. Jumping back to, to Thomas here, our boy Thomas in verse 24 of John 20, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. I got a problem with that. Jesus planned everything out. He told his disciples, hey, go. There's going to be a donkey tied up. That's the one I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on. Like he had it set up ready, ready and waiting, right? The donkey was all fed, watered up. And then he's like, hey, we've got Passover coming up. Go. There's a guy with a water jar. It's his house, his upper room. It's already laid out, furnished. It's great. The Airbnb is already checked in. We got the, the heater. We got all the furnishings. That's where we're having Passover. The boys are like, Airbnb. He's, oh, yeah, sorry. Wrong century. Bring it back. There's a guy, water jar, up there. Okay, cool. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and he's like, perfect. Thomas is out getting um, fish tacos for the boys. I'm going to show up. Thomas gets back. He's like, what's up? They're like, dude, Jesus showed up. He drops the fish tacos. Are you kidding me? I've been here this whole time. I leave for 10 minutes, and Jesus shows up. Like, yeah, it was great. The hole in his hands, I stuck my finger. He's like, shut up, Matthew. you got to be kidding me. John's like, yeah, my whole hand right in his side. It's how it, he was here. He even ate with us. Last night's burritos, we had, it was great. We warmed him up. Thomas is like, are you, what? They told him, we've seen the Lord in John 20, 24 through 25. We've seen the Lord. He was here. In verse 25, they told him, we saw the Lord. But Thomas replied, I'm not going to believe it. You guys are pulling my leg. I know we, we kind of role played like the what ifs. That was yesterday. I know he raised Lazarus, but like himself, that's a whole nother level. Like, come on, we saw he was dead. Like, he was dead, dead. They hung him on the cross at eye level. He's naked, beat, bloody. Everyone's cursing at him. He took his last breath. Like, we saw the tomb, the stone. It's, dude, what? 
I'm not going to believe, he says in verse 25, unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and I put my fingers in them, as you guys got the opportunity to, and I place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, we call him Doubting Thomas, which in hindsight, maybe we should give him a little more grace. Maybe we should be harder on ourselves than poor Thomas here. He, the rest of the disciples got to see him. Why can't he? Why can't he have the same experience, especially those type A, right? You want the info. You want the details. You want to see it. You're not going to take someone's word for it. We can relate to the realists. You've been through life. You've had hurts. You've had people lie to you or, or hopes built up, and then your disappointments fall flat. He's like, dude, I've been through life. Come on. No. I got to see Jesus for myself. Questions don't make him bad. They make him human. Just like our doubts don't make us bad, they just make us human. And Oswald Chambers adds to the conversation saying, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. So doubt isn't always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking and processing, and I don't know. Possible, but I want to see it. If we look back, into, if we were to kind of set a rank of who's the most committed disciples, we could look back to John 11 and see when Lazarus died in verse 14, Jesus told him plainly, look, Lazarus is dead, we got to go. And Thomas is like, if we go, you're going to die, Jesus. So Thomas says, well, then let us go that we may die with him in John 11. So he's committed. There's no hesitation. He's like, well, if Jesus is going to go, we got to go. If he's going to die, we're going to die. In John 14, Jesus says, look, I got to go. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And Thomas is like, this sounds a whole lot like heaven. Like, because we can go everywhere else, but you're going to go prepare a place. And much like you and I, like back in the day, the directions were always like, hey, head down, and then you'll see like a red barn, take a right there, and go about a quarter mile. And then it's the, oh, Susie, oh, yeah, it used to be a shell, now it's a mobile. So the mobile, you hang a left there, and you're like, dude, what? Now you're like, can I just get the numbers and the street address? I'll be good. Unless you've done that, and then it ends up in a field, and that field in Arizona, they, Google's saying that's in and out and you're super disappointed, like I was. You're like, okay, maybe the old directions weren't all that bad. Give me the map. Give me the highlighter. Let's chart this route. So Jesus says, hold on, Jesus. You're going to a place. So I got to know where. I got to know the info. I got to know the details in John 14. So Thomas was a guy who believed, but he's also, like a lot of you, type A, I got to have all the information. Like, lay it all out for me. I got to see it to believe it. I don't know where you're going. How can I know the way? How can I go with you if I don't know the way? Just give me some more info. And so Thomas says, look, I need to see for myself. How did Jesus respond to Thomas's doubts? Man, he had a big case of FOMO, like I do, fear of missing out. He's like, guys, you got to see it. Why can't I see Jesus? Jesus shows up eight days later. Eight days later, the disciples are together again. This time, Thomas was with them. And he was still doubting in verse 26. He showed back up. Thomas had his doubts and he showed back up. He didn't leave after seven days. That's it. I'm done. I, I gave it seven days. It's a biblical number. I'm out. He showed back up. And some of you are here with your doubts. Who knows how long it's been since you said, hey, I'm going to look at this resurrection again. I'm going to look at Jesus again. I don't know how many doubts are, are, are with you today, and you showed back up to hear again the story that Jesus rose from the grave and the why. Why he rose from the grave and why it's important for us to look back 
2,000 plus years later. The doors are locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them, and he says, look, peace be with you, he said. Then he says to Thomas, hey, Thomas, put your, get your finger out. Put it in here. Give me your hand. Put it in my side. Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. My Lord, my God, Thomas exclaims. He's like, yes, this is my Lord, my God. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Oh, okay. My Lord, my God. He goes from doubting to proclaiming. From doubting to shouting. Jesus came to Thomas when he was doubting. And he gave him the evidence he needed. He revealed himself to a guy that said, this is what I need. I need to see you this way. And Jesus said, okay, here I am. And then Jesus exclaimed, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which is us in the room. Some of you are like, oh sweet, I know what prayer I'm praying tonight. I know, join the club, right? I'm like, Jesus, show up. I want to see you. I'm still going to believe, but that'd be awesome. The point here is that God is not distant in our doubts. God shows up. Jesus is not a standoff Savior. He's not at a distance. He's willing to be touched. Although he feels far off, he's within reach. You just have to reach out to him because oftentimes he's reaching for you. You can question. You can wrestle. Jacob did it in the Old Testament. God's always chasing after us, engaging us on our level, struggling. Bring your doubts to him. He wants that. He just wants to teach us through dramatic emphasis, right? As we experienced on Friday at the Passover. He's like, okay. I'll show up, Thomas. This is just for you, but it's also for the Gentiles later that will believe without seeing. They need to know. It's blessed for them. Great doubters often become dedicated believers. Great doubters often become dedicated believers. Like, "Uh uh-oh, I know where he's going. Check this out. This guy, Langdon Gilkey, was a 20th century American theologian and writer. He wasn't always placing his faith in God. See, in Harvard, he graduated in 1940, And during his time at Harvard, he learned what a lot of us have learned in high school. We just never knew what they were teaching us was secular humanism. The end result was woke ideology, critical race theory. And and hidden under that, the foundation of all of what's happening in our world today is secular humanism. And he ascribed to that. He took his faith. Instead of placing it in God, he put it in dying men. And he said, at men's core, we're good. We love people. We're charitable. We help people in need. At our core, we're good people. 1940, he graduates and goes to China to teach English. And World War II breaks out. Japan overtakes that portion of China and puts him in an internment camp. And he's like, this is great. My theory of secular humanism. We're all good at our core. This is going to be a great... I can't wait to see what happens. And to his dismay, all of the religious leaders, missionaries... People in society, they acted the same. It didn't matter what religion they claimed. They all used their viewpoint to justify their selfish and prideful actions. They were all concerned about themselves. They were all arrogant and prideful. And many, the worst of the bunch, were the religious people who used their religion to justify their actions. There was one man, he says, that that stood out, though. The one man, his name, in the midst of deep evil, he writes, brought hope, and his name was Eric Liddell. Some of you know him as an Olympian, gold medalist. He was a Scottish missionary who left his fame and fortune of being an Olympic runner to go be a missionary in China. So as God planned it all out, he brings Eric Liddell 
into the internment camp with Gilkey. And Gilkey described him as overflowing with good humor, love for life, with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. He became a self-appointed youth leader for all the young adults in the camp and orchestrated chess matches and, you know, dances and square dances and checking in and caring for people, pouring out a love and giving what little he had. Liddell developed a brain tumor and died a few weeks after that was found. And Gilkey said his circumstances were every bit as bleak as those around him. He was a sinner, the same as everyone else in the compound, but he was not self-seeking. There was no pride or arrogance in him, only a deep certainty of God's love. This belief buoyed him up to be able to extend true generosity rather than looking down on others. Gilkey realized and exclaimed that without him, without a doubt, none of us would have survived. God used Liddell to be able to show him the gospel of grace. It's not about right thinking. It's about gazing into God so much so that your life is changed and others see God's love flowing through you and it's different. And all of a sudden, Gilkey realized, wow, humans actually are sinful and selfish and prideful no matter what worldview they have. In history, never before have we had such an individualistic and weak worldview that gives us zero tools for dealing with suffering as our postmodern worldview does. We've always had a view of God. And in Christianity, following Jesus, the suffering servant that we have the crown represent, who came to die on the cross to pay the debt that we owe because we're sinners, and yet walked out of the grave to show you, hey, I'm going to give you new life. I've paid the debt you owe. This is the only view that Jesus offers to not only promise us an eternal inheritance, but purpose and joy through the suffering we experience. See, Thomas and the other disciples in Matthew 28, they were given the command and they took it and ran with it because they had God in them. The Holy Spirit was in them, empowering them. Thomas preached the gospel faithfully until, as tradition tells us, he was martyred in India in 72 AD. They shoved a stake through his gut and killed him. And he was like, bring it on, baby. Let's go. I'll go meet Jesus. But you need to meet him too. You need to know him because you're going to die someday too. But death doesn't have a sting for me, does it for you? His faith and belief grew through his doubts. Your doubts don't disqualify you and your faith. See, the devil wants to distract you and, and use your doubt to drive you away from God. But God can use your doubt, as he did Milky. Okay, you want to believe that, Gilkey? Sure, here. Test your hypothesis. It's false. I love you, and I'm chasing after you. Come back. I'm not done. God can use your doubt to draw you to God. As we, as we share this and preach this, I can't force you, I can't talk you into a relationship with Jesus. I can't do that even for my kids. And it's been amazing as someone looking back and seeing how God's given me the endless evidence of his promise and his presence in my life that it's harder to doubt. They're still there, but it's harder to doubt than it was. And to see my kids, my youngest, who's like, I don't believe this is real. I think we're in a movie. 
And maybe you're there going, man, I have doubts. And maybe you have more significant doubts and you're like, I don't know how to believe. I don't know if I can. I wanna encourage you the same way I encourage my kids who struggle with doubts to pray the Thomas prayer. Until I see the holes, until I see the, the side and shove my hand in there, until I see you, God, reveal yourself to me. Let me see you in a way that I can't deny it's you. And yes, blessed are those who believe without seeing, but why just not pray at all? Ask him to reveal himself to you. And maybe today is the answer. Maybe you've been praying, you're like, man, what do I do with doubts? Oh, I can bring my doubts to Jesus. Yes. And for you, believer, continually gaze upon Jesus and allow him to build your faith so that when you have an opportunity to share, you have the evidence for the hope you have. See, faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith, as we gaze upon our loving Lord and Savior, is the means to push through it. Faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith is the means to push through it. Mary at the tomb, she sees but doesn't see. She doubts, she's emotional, and all of a sudden, it's clear, this is Jesus. It'd be amazing if that's how quick it was, but like Thomas, he had to wait eight days. Don't let your doubt be your dead end. Keep showing back up. Keep walking, keep asking, keep searching. Come to Jesus. If you have doubts, tell Jesus. If you're struggling, carry them to Jesus and say, look, I'm uncertain, I don't know what the future's gonna hold, but I know you hold the future, so I'm bringing my doubts to you. I got questions, and the pastor can't even answer them. I don't know what to do. Bring him to Jesus. I got sexual baggage. It's not pretty. It's, it's a mess. Tell Jesus. You got secret addictions. Tell Jesus. You got hurts that are deep and old, and maybe they're from the church. People in the church, leaders in the church, tell Jesus. As we celebrate the resurrection, we're proclaiming that he fulfills his promise and his presence is nearer than it ever will be. And we long for the day when we'll be face to face with him. But he's the cornerstone of our faith. And he said, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again three times. And he did it. I'm going to follow that guy no matter where he goes. No matter what kind of doubts I have, my faith is going to be gazing into his eyes, into who he is. Not distracted long, but refocusing my gaze back on him. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love we have in Christ Jesus. The bad news is that we've all sinned and we've been separated from God because of that sin. But the good news is so good that Jesus, who was without sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange took place that was so great. He took our sin and in its place he gave us his perfect life. So anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And by simply calling upon his name and saying, I need your grace, I need your mercy, he'll forgive you. And so I want to invite you before we take communion, if there's some of you in the room that are just simply here going, yeah, I need that assurance. I need my sins forgiven. You're going to simply say, and there's nothing special in these words, but it's just an acknowledgement of the fact that God saved you by saying, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and I confess with my mouth that God raised him from the dead. So you can repeat after me as we pray. God, we come to you and we're, we're humbled that you would give us so much evidence and you would give us your son, fully God, fully man. And while there's so much evidence, the books and the time are not enough to go through it all. 
we're reminded that you're so patient with us within our doubts that we can bring them to you. And now as we fix our, our gaze upon you and put our faith in you, that you'd grow our belief. And for those here who are acknowledging now for the first time that they're in a sinner in need of a Savior, that as they repeat these words, knowing that, God, you've already saved them, this is just acknowledging that they're recognizing they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And they're saying, I believe in my heart that Jesus, your Lord, and I confess with my mouth that, God, you raised him from the dead, and you saved me. Thank you for forgiving me. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. Thank you for your free gift of grace through faith that would save me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, let us know. We want to celebrate with you. We want to walk with you. Don't leave without stopping by the Connect booth. They're coming up and just saying, hey, Pastor, the Lord moved in me. It's God who saves, and we celebrate, and we want to walk with you. And the next step is baptism. But even right now, maybe mark it down. Just, hey, this is the date. Easter, I trusted in Jesus. Now is an opportunity for believers to take communion as we are reminded that Jesus gave his body. As we remember that sin equals death, and he gave his body, perfect sinless body in our place, in exchange, we get his perfect life. And the blood that was shed was securing that covenant that sin equals death and that his death on the cross was in our place to remove our shame, our sin. I'm going to give you a minute to focus your eyes on Jesus and gaze into him with your faith and let him build your faith. And I'll come back up and close us. Jesus taught at that last Passover, he longed to eat with his disciples to show them two things. One, how he lovingly served them to the end. He, he allowed Judas to sit next to him and, and dip the bread with him before he said, okay, go and betray me. He showed us we're to love and be known by our love, and that requires serving one another. And he gave his body perfect, obedient, never sinning so that we could have that new life in him. And so as we take, eat, and remembrance of this, that we would continue to gaze upon our Lord and Savior. And the blood that was shed reminds us that we're not perfect yet, but we're in process, right? And, and some of us, that process is a long, hard road, and others, it seems like it'll never end. And, and others, it's, man, I, I'm nearing the end, and I can't wait to get to heaven but if we're honest a lot of us have doubt or have had doubt and this is the reminder 
to fix our eyes back and gaze upon our Lord and Savior, who removes all shame, all sin, past, present, and future. And it's because of this new covenant, we have hope that his presence is always with us and we'll be with him one day. We take and drink in remembrance of Jesus, accomplishing that promise, that new covenant in his blood. Let's pray together. God, as we proclaim the risen Son, and as we fix our eyes and minds gazing once again into the God who saves, may we not be people who just take a glance at you, but truly gaze. And like Thomas, when doubts come, that we would bring those doubts and those questions to you. And and as you appeared to Mary and to Thomas, that we know you're going to give us the evidence we need. And we're so thankful for the grace that you saved us and the faith you gave us to believe in you and to grow in that belief in you. And we pray for those family, friends, that we need to go share the hope we have with. We pray that you'd give us the opportunity and the words. And Lord, we pray through this week and and month that we would gaze upon our Lord and Savior and that our faith would be fixed on you and our belief would grow more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.